0: Okay, Um, so the the task for today is to uh, talk about Lucretius. But I think in order to talk about Lucretius, I sort of have to set him up because we're we're jumping over a big chunk of time uh, here. So at the beginning of the term, we were looking at texts from the 6th century BCE. um, And if there was a sort of theme of those earliest texts that we were looking at, I would say it was something like this, that um, at the time, political thought, while well, it was centered on the city, and it was centered on the city in a particular way because cities existed as sort of the terms of settlement or the, the condition of peace amongst fairly elite warlords, right? Um, and political thought centered around what the terms of that peace would be. And the initial changes that we saw in the stuff that we were looking at was that there was changing military techniques, right? The move from cavalry to, to heavy heavily armed hoplites to a navy altered the terms of peace um, and, and broadened the terms of citizenship. This leads in the fifth century BCE, um, and this is where we spent a lot of our time. Uh, this is where um, the, the world that Plato is thinking about, although he's thinking about it retrospectively, um, led to a period of democracy and empire in Athens, right? Athens enjoyed this naval hegemony over the Mediterranean. Uh, there was a marked increase in trade um, and the um, um, and then because of that, there was increased wealth. I mean, because of both of those things. And that meant that there was a stability to democracy um, and the the stabilization of democracy altered the terms of elite jockeying, right? Elites were still jockeying for political influence, um, but the terms of that influence and the world in which that influence could be exercised were very, very, very different. So on the one hand, you had reactionary traditionalists. Um, On the other hand, you had ambitious new elites who sought to bend democracy to their will. And you had this rise of rhetoric and sophistry, a rise of literacy, a rise of political argumentation And with all of those things, you had this rise of teachers for hire. That's obviously like, that's the background that uh, Plato is writing against. And Plato's, the foundation of Plato's Academy in roughly 388 BCE was um, sort of inaugurated a new phenomenon, namely the, the phenomenon of schools. So in the fourth century, um, democracy was already in decline. Certainly the Athenian empire was over um, by, um, by 388. And after the rise of Macedon to the sort of role of Greek hegemon, you saw that democracy in Athens was restricted now to a purely domestic phenomenon. Athens did not have a, an independent um, foreign policy. And that basically continued. Uh, the Macedon fell and uh, Athens briefly had its uh, returns to an, a condition of independence. But with the rise of Rome in the next century um, and the reconquest of Athens, then you Athens subsides as a political power. Um, And not just as a political power, but as an independent city-state. Under Roman leadership, uh, Athens did not have an independent political life at all. So the schools that started taking off after the eclipse of the Athenian Empire um, had, I think, found fertile ground to grow uh, in this new... World. So these schools were a new phenomenon. Uh, and so not only Plato had a school, uh, Aristotle had a school, and after them, uh, schools proliferated. And I'll be talking more uh, about some of those um, in just a minute. But it's a new phenomenon because the oldest philosophers in Athens were basically uh, itinerant, traveling teachers, I mean, they, they were considered wise men, and people would want to study with them. But they would, you know, get a patron in a rich household, um, and live someplace for a while and teach, like the children of a wealthy, um, of a wealthy citizen or something like that. Or they would sort of wander about from city to city. And their teaching was heavily focused on nature, That was what philosophy was about. It was natural philosophy. Um, And so they were even called the the Fusiologoi. That is, they they spoke about nature. They spoke about what the cosmos is. The rise of the sophists made philosophy less of an idiosyncratic um, um, sort of quasi esoteric wisdom, and made it something that had political salience. And so with the rise of the sophists, you have uh, sophists teaching rhetoric, teaching argumentation, teaching political virtue and doing so for pay. But they still didn't establish schools. They took on individual students, um, but that was slightly different. After Socrates um, and after Plato founds his school, other philosophers start doing the same. Um, and so, what I want to talk about today is the schools of the Hellenistic world, um, and the sort of the the change that this wrought on post-Socratic philosophy. So, on this slide, uh, the picture there is uh, Diogenes the Cynic, who um, the the Cynics were uh, a sort of hewed to a particular version of uh, Socratic teaching and didn't found a school per se uh, in the same way that some of the others did, or, or Diogenes did not at least. Uh, but uh, here, what Diogenes is doing the, is he's wandering through the Agora with a lamp in the middle of the day and people are like, what are you doing Diogenes? And he says, yeah, I'm searching for an honest man. Um, Diogenes was sort of the, the punk uh, and prankster and uh, so forth of uh, ancient philosophy. I'll tell you more about him in just a second. So this is my own little map of the Hellenistic schools. And all of them, um, all of them are offshoots of, or indebted to Socratic philosophy in an important way. Um, But, the lessons they took from Socrates and the way in which they developed the Socratic practice of philosophy um, very, uh, you know, were quite disparate. So that's what I'm trying to capture here. Um, There are sort of two alternate, uh, two sets of alternatives um, that you could take. If you were deeply impressed by Socrates' practice of philosophy, then you might emphasize the positive aspect of um, Socrates, or you might emphasize the negative destructive aspect of Socrates. That is, you might emphasize Socrates tearing down of opinions um, and and of the way things are done, his critical side, or you might emphasize his rational side, right? His effort to find the rational uh, explanation for things. You also, um, there's another alternative. You might emphasize his activist um, attempt to intervene in Greek um, political and social life. That is, you might emphasize the way in which he went out among the people um, and um, tried to talk to them. On the other hand, you might emphasize his more quietistic side, that is the fact that he eschewed political power in particular, um, and um, even eschewed the claim to know anything or to teach anything, right? So Socrates never took on students um, in the way that these later schools did. So you might emphasize that side of things. This gives rise to, if you and like the, the, conjunct- the various conjunctions that are possible here give rise to four possibilities then, right? Uh, so I'll start with Diogenes. Diogenes was de- greatly impressed by Socrates, um, but not that impressed by Plato or um, after and the way in which Plato took Socratic teaching. So the famous story um, told in the chat is that uh, he showed up to Plato teaching Um, in the academy um, talking about the definition of man and uh, uh, Plato was arguing that by, uh, was trying to arrive at a definition of human being and uh, got to the point of saying that uh, a human being is a featherless biped and Diogenes threw a plucked chicken uh, to, up to Socrates uh, or to Plato's feet and said, behold a man. Um, so this is the, the, the sort of thing that, so- that uh, Diogenes would do. Diogenes also lived in the Agora in a barrel um, and flouted uh, convention um, as a way, as a destructive way of, of showing people, of demonstrating pe- to people that they did not know how to live, that they relied wholly on prejudice, right? And so Diogenes and the entire school of cynicism um, emphasizes this destructive aspect and confrontational aspect of Socrates, right? That it goes out and tries actively to destroy public prejudices um, and to undermine common practices. In order to awake the knowledge that you don't know um, what to do and that you're relying on prejudice rather than virtue. In a certain way, uh there was another school of, of skeptics who seemed very similar to Diogenes in a certain way, but were not confrontational in the same way. So um, uh, basically, a century after Plato's death, the Academy had fell to into the hand or fell to the leadership of this um, guy, uh, Arcesilaus And Archicelius, um was emphasized the skeptical side of Socrates in the sense that he emphasized the way in which Socrates' argumentative um, strategy was purely destructive. That is. The skeptics would show that you could argue both sides of any particular question, Um, and by doing so, you could um, shake loose your sense that you knew anything at all. So that was um, that was one thing that the um, the, that was the the way the skeptics went, and the after. Arcuselius, uh, he passed the Academy on to Carna- Carniades. And um, after that, the, the, the Plato's Academy was um, f- largely skeptical for a long time. Um, and, and this gave rise to a particular school of skepticism called academic skepticism. There were other skeptics as well. Um, uh, the most famous is this fellow Purus uh, and his student Timon. Um, and they were also skeptics, so they were not associated with the academy. And rather than destroying, rather than emphasizing the destruction of sort of common practices and prejudices, um, what skepticism emphasized was that you were destroying claims to knowledge or certainty. Skeptics tended to be very conservative when it came to practice. They, they didn't wanna disrupt practices at all but they only wanted to destroy claims to knowledge. Um, hence, they were more, they're the quietistic cousins of, cynics, of the cynics. The cynics go out and try to, to upset people, whereas the the skeptics want to upset your claim to knowledge, but not upset you. There's a way in which... I think Aristotle has a similarity to the skeptics in the sense that, and, and is quite on the opposite extreme from cynics like Diogenes, because Aristotle, and also this is, this is true of Xenophon also, who knew Socrates um, directly and, and admired Socrates greatly. Um, I've, I've labeled them conventionalists on this, um, which doesn't get at everything, but I think it's important that um, one of the things that um, Aristotle does is that he sort of revindicates vindicates common sense and social appropriateness um, and gives them a sort of rational basis. So he takes the Socratic method of examining um, common beliefs, but rather than showing that everybody doesn't know what they're talking about, um, what he shows is that everybody has got some handle on the truth, or at least the most prominent opinions are ones that they do see something about the truth. And because of that, they can be reconstructed and rationalized in a particular way, right? And so in Aristotle, you get a, uh, an attempt to m- uh, marry rationalism, a sort of positive rationalism to a, a vindication of common sense, right? The other possibility here, and this is the one that we're going to be talking about um, for the rest of the day, and that's why I've saved it for last, is what's frankly uh, dogmatic philosophy, right? Uh, now dogmatic um, has a bad connotation, right? Um, but as we know from the Republic, dogma just means like uh, a, a conviction, right? So dogmatic philosophers mobilize philosophical rationality um, in order to shore up and advance their conviction about what are rationally justified beliefs, right? And they try to propagate those rationally justified beliefs, right? So... Dogmatists, um, and these were most of the most important schools um, of the Hellenistic period, um, were activist in the sense that they sought to um, gain adherence and to change people's minds. Um, and they were positive in the sense that they wanted to offer a rational alternative to the beliefs that people already had. And the big uh, three schools here are uh, Stoicism, Epicureanism, and the later uh, peripatetic school, that is uh, Aristotle's school um, well after Aristotle had died. Um, So it got, it became more dogmatic in the sense that it had, it had a a strong positive teaching that it tried to portray and get across. So, We'll talk more about stoicism and the later peripatetics when we get to um, Cicero, because those two schools, Cicero is sort of a, uh, represents a sort of fusion or, um, or combination of terms from those two schools. But what we need to talk about today is Epicureanism because that's, uh, that's Lucretius for you. Okay, so I want to back up one step uh, in order to then um, make this same contrast between um, Aristotelian sort of conventionalism and Epicurean dogmatism um, a little bit clearer and more far-reaching. So think back on, if we think about the continuity between the Socrates portrayed by Plato and Aristotle. Um, Plato's Socrates and Aristotle, I think, they agree about a lot. <clears throat> and two of the most important things that they agree, ab- agree about are that um, philosophy, the life of philosophy is the highest life possible for human beings, right? That means that they think that in some sense, philosophy completes and perfects human life, right? So um, that means philosophy is the telos of human life or, or it's the purpose or the end of human life. And because it is the purpose or the end of human life, philosophy is practiced for its own sake. It's the height of virtue. Right. So, um, in these regards, right, they um, are all opposed to the sophists, right, who engaged in things that were kind of like philosophical um, um, speculation, philosophical argumentation, but for the sake of um, rationalizing your own practices and gaining the things you want, right. Um, making your desire more effective, um, gaining political power, learning how to speak well, right? You You had to engage in philosophical inquiry in order to do those things well, but philosophy was fundamentally a means to those ends. Whereas for Socrates, for Plato, for Aristotle, philosophy is an end in itself. But Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all agreed with the sophists that in some sense, philosophy was about human life, right? Um, or in Plato's Plato's way of talking about this was that it uh, began with the human things, right? Socrates' um, innovation was to uh, turn from the old sort of philosophical speculation, which started with the natural things, which started with the heavenly bodies and to turn that sort of rational inquiry towards the city and towards the human uh, human affairs, right? So in this sense, the, the line from Socrates to Aristotle is contrary to the old Fusiologoi. Now, Aristotle has a, a physics and Aristotle has a metaphysics, but I think there's an important sense in which the the terms of in which Aristotle understands physical and metaphysical phenomena are in some sense derived from uh, his discussion of human life. Um, and I'll come back to this in just a second. So... That that's the continuity of of from Socrates to Aristotle, but there is there's a discontinuity also that needs to be stressed. Aristotle emphasizes very strongly two things that that you don't really find you can find in some elements of, some of Plato's dialogues, but certainly they were not strongly present in the Platonic dialogues that we read. Right. The first is that um, in Aristotle you get a very extensive account of the possibility and the utility of positive knowledge about the world. You get a whole scientific program of um, studying nature, studying uh, comparative uh, constitutions, um, etc. Right? You get this positive science of the world, um, something that in Plato, at least in Plato of the Republic, seems nonsensical, right? Because it seems like for Plato, knowledge is necessarily founded on and only found in a turn away from the world, away from, because we can only have opinion about the things that appear to the senses. And you don't get that in Aristotle, right? The second um, discontinuity between Aristotle and uh, Socrates, or Plato, Socrates, is that for Aristotle, political activity, um, life in the city, um, engagement in politics is itself a worthy object of philosophical contemplation, right? And this was the sort of lesson that I was trying to draw from the politics um, last week, right? That theoria, contemplation, one of the things that it does is that it beholds human action um, in the city and sees the displays of virtue um, in political life and draws um, lessons from those about um, everything, all right, about the nature of being itself. So I said that uh, Epicurus, Epicureanism is one of these dogmatic schools that occupies this other corner of the, the map. Um, and so now um, I, wanna, I wanna talk about that. And with that, what I've said about the Socratic uh, elements of, of Aristotle um, in the background. So first a little biography. So Epicurus um, was um, a he was an Athenian by birth, or had Athenian citizenship. Um, he was; um, his parents were Athenian, and he spent some of his life in Athens, um, right around the time of Aristotle's death. Um, Epicurus was in Athens um, in um, 323 when Alexander died. Uh, And when Aristotle left Athens to go into uh, exile before his own death in 322. Um, Epicurus, at some point after that, um, went to the eastern shore of Turkey um, and with a um, um, Democritian, so Democritus was an ancient uh, physiologoi who was an atomist. Uh, he believed that everything that existed was atoms, um, and one and there was a Democritian philosopher uh, living on the east, eastern shore of of Turkey, and Epicurus went there, studied with him, and then moved further north in Turkey, uh, uh, in what is today Turkey, to the city of uh, Lampsacus, and he taught in Lampsacus. He lived there and he taught. He didn't teach publicly. He taught privately in his own garden. He took students um, who would come to his house and they would sit in the in his backyard um, and he would teach. Uh, he took uh, there's it's well attested that he had women students and uh, even slaves as students. And what he taught was uh, a a sort of dogmatic, um, therapeutic, an anti-political sort of philosophy, right? So it was dogmatic uh, in the sense that he had a very definite set of positive precepts that he taught, um, a, a set of convictions about the natural world, about the gods, about the human soul, and about um, how to live a human life and what virtue was. Um, and but the purpose of this dogmatic teaching was highly therapeutic um, in the sense that it was um, meant to uh, assuage suffering and to reduce the suffering of his students. It was meant to make you happy or at least content. Um, ataraxia is the word that Epicurus uses which means sort of being unconcerned, being unbothered. Um, and that's sort of the goal, being unperturbed by the world. Um, that was the the purpose of this uh, philosophical therapy. And you might think that, you know, that was a particularly appropriate sort of therapy for a world in which, um, you know, the realm of political action had substantially disappeared, right? Um, there were not opp- so many opportunities for uh, civic engagement as there had been uh, a century or before. So Epicurus, uh, Epicurean teachings spread and Epicurus took on, uh, he had some writings that were passed down uh, and he took on a sort of occultic uh, quality. He was basically um, like a a Jesus-like savior figure to later Epicureans um, who saw in him and in his teachings the key to human salvation. Lucretius is one of those later students. It's ironically, we know much less about Lucretius than we do about Epicurus. Even though Lucretius was uh, an upper-class um, uh, Roman, right? He was an aristocratic Roman um, living at a time when l- there was an immense amount of writing um, being done um, by aristocratic Romans, but he uh, did not rise to anyone's attention really um, until after his death, um, when he his poem rerum Natura on the nature of things was uh, published, reputedly it was originally published by Cicero, uh, in fact. Um, and it was massively um, influential uh, and admired. The Virgil, um, the you know the greatest of the ancient Roman poets, Um, admired Lucretius's uh, poem immensely um, and said in his uh, Georgics that, uh, said of Lucretius, quote, happy he who was able to know the causes of things and who trampled beneath his feet all fears, inexorable fate, and the roar of devouring hell. Which is quite a a bit of praise. Um, So, the, uh, and that, that little quote from, uh, from Virgil is evocative of, of uh, one of the central teachings of Epicurus, right? So I said that it was a therapeutic philosophy. Um, and so Epicurus had said, uh, is written that, uh, vain is the word of a philosopher by whom no human suffering is cured. For just as medicine is of no use if it fails to banish the diseases of the body, so philosophy is of no use if it fails to banish the suffering of the mind. Okay. In particular, um, that suffering for ends our fear of death. Fear of death is the root of human suffering for Epicureans. So in uh, Rerum Natura, in the part that you read for today, three, um, in particular, lines 978 to 1024 really uh, drive this home because what Lucretius argues there is that all of the punishments that tradition locates in the abyss of Acheron, that is in the underworld, in hell after death, actually exist in our lives. So every way in which we imagine injustice or sin or wickedness to be punished is actually a projection of the suffering that we uh, undergo here on earth. We undergo that suffering for our, um, our sins in some sense, that is we do wrong and we suffer for it. But we imagine that that suffering comes from outside us or that it comes from outside of nature, that it comes from um, God Uh, that it comes from a sort of divine justice, um, and that it will continue or even be augmented in the afterlife. So that passage I referred to uh, in in book three ends with this line, even though these horrors are absent, um, that is the horrors of, of punishment, the mind, conscious of its guilt and fearfully anticipating the consequences, pricks itself with goads and sears itself with scourges. It fails to see how there could be an end to its afflictions or a limit to its punishment. Indeed, it is afraid that its suffering may increase in death. In short, fools make a veritable hell of their lives on earth. And Epicurean therapy is fundamentally oriented towards getting us to stop making a hell of our lives on earth by keeping us from being fools in this way. It seeks to enlighten us in a way. So how does it seek to enlighten us and thereby to alleviate the suffering that we impose upon ourselves in our foolishness? Well, by an interesting way. Um, First of all, uh, Epicureans set out to teach the materiality and the mortality of the soul, right? Um, they set out to teach the non-existence of any afterlife and the eternity of death, right? And this is supposed to make us feel better, right? Um, the, the phrase they use for this, the eternity of death is to say deathless death, right? They refer to death as deathless, um, to, to drive home the sense that um, death will never end, right? Once you die, it's forever. Um, there is no, there is no end to being death, to being dead. But precisely because there's no end to being dead, um, death is nothing for us. The, the classic argument um, inaugurated by Epicurus and repeated multiple times in different ways by Lucretius is that um, death is nothing for us because so long as we are, death is not, right? As long as we live, um, death doesn't exist for us. Um, But when death exists, we do not, right? So there's no point of coincidence between ourselves, our self-awareness, our lives, our hopes, our dreams. There's no point of coincidence between those things and death, right? Um, um, So therefore, there's no point in worrying about it, right? When, when you're dead, you're not going to be around to suffer anything, right? So there's no point in worrying about it. Um, the Epicureans take these points even further, right. They say that um, they, they say that death will come for all things, right? All compound bodies. and that means the earth, the sun, the stars, the moon, everything. Everything that exists, except for the atoms themselves, will die um, and cease to exist. And the flip side of that is that nothing immaterial exists at all. Right? Whatever doesn't is not made up of atoms. Whatever is immaterial is just void. It's nothingness, and therefore doesn't exist. Okay. And the this uh, is detailed. Um, in uh, book three, lines 1077 through 1093. That's one point where it's, uh, where it's detailed. Um, um, and in fact, maybe I'm gonna read that to you because it's kind of nice. Uh, my translation is slightly different than the one that uh, is posted. So forgive the, that little difference. <laughs> this is the very end of book three. What is this perverse passion for life that condemns us to such a feverish existence amongst doubt and danger? The fact is that a sure end of life is fixed for mortals. We cannot avoid our appointment with death. Moreover, our environment is always the same and no new pleasure is procured by the prolongation of life. The trouble is that, so long as the object of our desire is wanting, it seems more important than anything else. But later, when it is ours, We covet some other thing. And so an insatiable thirst for life keeps us always open-mouthed. Then again, we cannot tell what fortune the future will bring us or what chance will send us or what end is in store for us. By prolonging life, we do not deduct a single moment from the time of our death, nor can we diminish its duration by subtracting anything from it. Therefore, however many generations your life may span, the same eternal death will await you. And one who ended life with today's light will remain dead no less long than one who perished many months and years ago. All of this is supposed to teach us that it doesn't matter um, when we die Um, and doesn't matter we will die and the time of our death will be infinite. Um, And so, in comparison to that, whether you have a day or a week or an extra year of life is literally nothing. But the thing is, all of this none of this is supposed to um, drive people to suicide or something like that. Um, it's not dr- supposed to drive you to despair or to say that life doesn't matter. It's supposed to drive you precisely to, it's supposed to console you. Right? It's supposed to make you content with life and with whatever life you have. Right? Um, and this is a way in which I think there is an important overlap with Socratic philosophy and with the Socratic tradition. Um, and so what I want to do next is just to compare Lucretius' teachings with Teachings that you could reasonably get from the Platonic uh, Socrates, I and mean, to show some of the some of the overlaps and differences here, because the first of these is that um, there's this an emphasis upon um, you know what basically living peacefully, that is being at peace with your life, right, being satisfied with the lot that you have in life, um, and being at peace with yourself, not desiring something that is not yours. In Lucretius, this comes out explicitly in book five as a recommendation that it's, you know, it's far better to live peacefully as a subject than to desire the dominion of states, right? The, in both Socrates, uh, Plato's Socrates and in Lucretius, you get a therapy of desire, which is, that is to say, you get a, an attempt to calm your desires, to not desire more, right? To be satisfied with whatever you have. And that goes hand in hand with not wanting or seeking political life, political power because political power isn't going to get you something that you don't already have. You already have everything you need. This also goes hand in hand. The the second big similarity is that both um, Plato's Socrates and Lucretius engage in uh, this reform of religion, right? Teaching us that the gods are happy and good Right? Um, and they're not out to get us, right? Um, they're they're, they're um, good and perfect just the way they are. Uh, in Lucretius, this is uh, in book five, lines 1162 through 1205. Right? But even in these places of overlap, I think there are significant differences. And so I wanna, I wanna look at those real quickly. So thinking about this recommendation of a peaceful life, so um, in Epicurus, this doesn't, and in Lucretius, this doesn't look the same as in Plato because there's there's no wish or prayer for to be a philosopher king, right? There's no, uh, there's not even that. So it, Socrates is, is not going to recommend that you pursue political power, but he is going to say, he is gonna sort of say, well, it would be nice if a well-ordered soul was in charge of the city because that would redound to everyone's benefit. And there's not even that wish uh, in Epicureanism uh, and in Lucretius. Partly this is related to the fact that the, the, the life that Lucretius wishes for is the life of a subject, not of a citizen. Right, not even a private citizen. Right, it's partly because the world that Lucretius is living in is a world in which um, the the desire for a public life or a special status of civic freedom is part of the the trouble as far as Lucretius is concerned. Right, so Lucretius. and and this is present already in Epicurus, one of the reasons why Epicurus had women and slaves as um, students is because he thought that being a slave or being a woman is no barrier to philosophy because it's no barrier to contentment. And that is very different from what you'll get from Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle, right? Epicureanism is accepting of slaves and women as being they're equally capable of living a good, happy life, a life of contentment and wisdom. But that's because the requirements for contentment and wisdom are so minimal, right? Um, all you need is a sort of peace of mind, which you can get by reforming your own consciousness right? Whereas in Socrates, in Plato, in Aristotle, you you actually need other things. There are other conditions of happiness, conditions that are outside of your own way of thinking about life, right? But that are actually material conditions that are out there in the world. Hence, you get this, um, like, um, the Socratic tradition is both more dismissive of slaves and women, and more critical of the conditions that slaves and women are kept in, which uh, is an interesting uh, duality, I think. The other side of, the other uh, differences, uh, and this is related to what I asked you in the reading question, pertain to the reform of religion. Right. While Epicureans also teach that the gods are happy and good, um, they have a very different sense of things than than Socrates or than the Socratic tradition. They, on the one hand, they engage in an open attack on the superstition of creationism. Right. The gods had nothing to do with the making of the world. They don't. They have never caused the world to come into being. They are not the source of the world. For Epicureanism, the gods exist uh, intermundia, right? Between the worlds. They are uh, purely self-content, happy, uninvolved with anything, right? So, For Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the fact that the gods are perfectly good means that they must be the source of goodness in the world. And Epicureanism denies that link. The goodness of the gods is proof that they exist outside the world um, and have nothing to do with it. Second, there's an open attack, obviously, on the very idea of the afterlife. So I, I think, you know, you can read Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle in different ways on the afterlife. I don't think you have to attribute to them an actual belief in an afterlife. But you do, I think, have to attribute to them a belief that telling stories about the afterlife is really important for human beings. That even if there is no afterlife um, in the normal sense, human beings have to believe that there's an afterlife um, in order for most human beings to be, um, have any orientation towards virtue, right? And in Epicureanism, this gets denied outright. Fear of punishment makes people worse according to Epicureanism, right? Um, the the belief that you will be punished for injustice in the afterlife, all that does is make you miserable in this life. And being miserable, you're more likely to make the people around you miserable. It would be better for all of us if we could expunge any concerns of the afterlife from our minds, because that would free us up to um, be unconcerned about what fate befell us and to to not try to avoid having any evil befall us and so forth. We, we could actually enjoy life precisely by not being so concerned about what's going to happen to us after. I mean, and for Epicurus, that means we're going to be more just if we're not scared, right? We're going to be, Um, We're not going to interfere with others if we're not um, uh, filled with um, a a fear of what could happen to us um, if we are caught out, uh, if we are um, um, subjected to punishment after death. And this stems from some deeper divergences between the two traditions. So for Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and this is why Christianity um, is able to, uh, like finds lots of resources in this tradition. The root of human evil and misery is fundamentally human desire, right? Um, And so the, that's why fear of punishment is really important. And that's why a fear of the afterlife is, is um, salutary um, for this tradition, right? The, on the one hand, my desire is going to be tamed by fear of punishment, but it's also then it can be redirected and moderated and made good by a love of perfection. And this is runs through uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. This attempt to awaken a love of perfection, and that this is what will this is what will make our desire decent, right? Whereas, for Epicurus and Lucretius, uh, the root of human evil and misery is not desire at all. The root cause of it all is fear, right? Um, and in fact, fear is at the root of desire itself, right? Desire causes all sorts of problems for sure, but it's the desire is itself rooted in fear, fear that we're going to not have what we need um, at some point down the line. When in fact, we have everything we need to be content always, right? So the way in which this um, our fear can be assuaged and, and even extirpated, that is, gotten rid of completely, right? So, And we could conceivably, for Lucretius and Epicureanism, we could live without fear at all, and we could live without fear at all, and hence be completely virtuous and completely um, content if we simply understand the world we live in. This is why uh, Epicureanism had a huge influence on the enlightenment, right? Um, because of its drive to understand the world. So that brings me to two concluding thoughts, right? Um, these are sort of consequences for, of these sort of root disagreements between Lucretius and the Socratic tradition. Um, brought to a a sort of uh, what I think are their their final consequences. For Lucretius and for Epicureanism in general, as for the sophists, right, philosophy is a means. It's not an end in itself. Um, It's certainly not, philosophy is not the the perfection of human faculties. Um, It's not like this um, sort of perfect, joyous um, um, contemplation of the perfection of the world. Philosophy is undertaken purely as a means of quieting the mind, of settling down, right? Of um, giving us explanations for the phenomena that we experience that cause us to experience fear. And this, has an interesting effect. Um, uh, for Lucretius, it doesn't matter whether the explanations, so in the various books of, the, of on the nature of things, which we did not read, he gives explanations of all sorts of cosmic phenomena, explanations of, of comets, explanations of, well, and also of biological phenomena of growth, of death, of decay, of change. All of this physical explanation, of the world on the basis of atoms and their behavior, it doesn't matter for Lucretius fundamentally whether any particular explanation is true. So one of the things that he'll do is he will say, well, there's this phenomenon. Well, it could be explained this way, or it could be explained this way, or it could be explained this third way, or it could be explained this fourth way. Regardless, there's an explanation for it it doesn't matter which explanation it is, just so long as you know that there is an explanation for it. Uh, There's a purely physical explanation for it. Um, And because you know that there's a purely physical explanation for it, there's no need to fear it, right? Um, So philosophy is a means of quieting the mind by revealing the way in which everything has a cause. Um, And we can think about what those causes might plausibly be as long as we have plausible causal stories to tell ourselves about every phenomenon in the world, we have no reason to fear um, and we have no reason to be disturbed by any of them. So by a naturalism, I mean that Lucretius wants to get us, get his readers out of their heads. Uh, he wants them to see the world not with human eyes, but from an impersonal point of view, from the the point of view of the impersonal non-human processes that constitute and reconstitute the world around us. Because he fundamentally thinks that human beings need to get over ourselves. We need to stop seeing ourselves as the center of the world. We're not the center of the world. We're just stardust, right? <laughs> we're, just, we're just in the void. There's nothing particularly special about us. We are natural phenomena, just like everything else around us. Um, we are more like rocks than we are like gods. Um, And if we can think of ourselves as rocks or as akin to rocks, as purely physical um, processes going on uh, in an impersonal, uncreated, undirected world, then we will be happier. We will know peace. It's, the reverse of what happened in Plato and Aristotle. In Plato and Aristotle, you fundamentally, Plato and Aristotle fundamentally embrace and and the world at large as fundamentally oriented around human beings and as, uh, in some sense, for us. Right? In Aristotle, this is very explicit the rest of the world really exists for us. or we have to we have to see it that way. Um, have to understand in order to understand it, we have to understand it as existing for human action um, and human um, existence, human understanding, human contemplation. So, Uh, The Platonic Aristotelian tradition gives rise to a fundamental humanism and uh, Lucretius and Epicureanism gives us a sort of anti-humanism, but a a therapeutic anti-humanism, a a concern for human suffering that uh, is supposed to be alleviated by human beings not thinking that they're special.